my wife Albany and our daughter Charlotte are members of Redeemer Church, and we're just so excited to see everybody this morning. Thanks for joining us on a spring break Sunday. Uh, today's text is in Mark 11. We're going to be reading from verses 1 through 11, and I'll be reading from the ESV translation. Um, give everybody just a second to turn there. Thank you to the folks from Midland for leading us in worship. You guys are awesome. I appreciate it. So Mark uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and the others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thank you, Dr. Chad. Hey, it's good to be with you this morning. If you are here... You are truly the A-team because you are not on spring break tripping or the lack of an extra hour of sleep or the loss of an hour of sleep, rather, didn't deter you. So thank you for being here. If you're a guest, if you'd take a minute and fill out the Connect card under your chair, we'd love an opportunity to connect with you, see how we could serve you, see how we could get you plugged in to the life of the body. Uh, I'm Tanner House, I'm the lead pastor here. And if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Matt's in the back, he can, he can get you one. And if you're on your phone or tablet, we use the ESV. So I have, I have four kids. Uh, I have two sons and two daughters. And I always wanted just a huge family, a bunch of kids. Five strong, able-bodied boys. I only wanted boys. And then my wife's sister had a baby girl, and I just fell in love with my niece. So I was like, okay, four boys, one girl. I think I could do that. And then on May 15th, 2014, the phone rang, and it was our foster care agency. And I was like, I'm about to become a dad to a little boy. And they're like, hey, we have this little girl. Are we available? And that was the easiest yes of my life. I became a dad to this beautiful little baby girl, and then a son, and then another girl, and then a son. And at some point, there were two other kids thrown in the mix because that's what foster care does. So like six kids in about a 32-month period. That was real life for me at one point. Um, Here's what I can tell you that I've experienced in the last eight years. Little boys are a lot of fun. Little girls are just really special. My little girls have messed up my life in the best ways possible. Presently, if you could see my feet, uh, I have pink toenails on my left foot and green on my right foot. And as sandal season approaches, I'm really excited to just show them off. 
any, any pretense I had built up in my mind about being this like macho man has gone away, completely gone. Now I have like tea parties and I do horrible British accents. I sound more like Forrest Gump than Prince William. I don't care. I'm just not the same guy that I was. And that's because of my kids, but that's also because of my daughters. I'm just like a soft guy now in all the good ways. Here's what else I do, though. I watch Disney princess movies, and they all follow the same basic plot, right? If you've seen, them, seen one Disney princess movie, you've seen them all. The princess has a problem. It's usually because she created a problem because that's what spoiled animated princesses do. Uh, she meets some handsome fella who actually turns out to be the bad guy. Uh, but then another handsome fella, usually from more humble origins, shows up and saves the day, and they live happily ever after, like Aladdin in Aladdin or Kristoff in Frozen. You know the type I'm talking about. It's really good story writing because the guy that we expect to end up with the princess never actually ends up with the princess. We're all surprised. We're supposed to be surprised. We've seen so many of these movies, we know what to expect now. But we should all be surprised that the nice guy without the means wins the princess's heart in the end. And all that's cool because it's fairy tales. But let's consider Jesus for a second. Jesus is a lot like the heroes in these fairy tales. Now, don't throw things at me. It's just a comparison and it falls apart if we take it too literally. Uh, but think about it. Scripture would tell us that Jesus is also from humble origins. Isaiah 53 says he was despised and rejected by men. And here he is. I don't want to ruin the story for you here. Spoiler alert. Jesus is the hero of the story of the Bible. So throughout our walk through Mark, we've seen Jesus show up as the son of a carpenter from the worst town in the world. Not Odessa, but Nazareth. And he completely goes against cultural norms and expectations on him. We've seen Jesus heal on the Sabbath. We've seen him interacting with kids on a more personal and intentional way than any other rabbi has ever done before. We see him interacting with social outcasts and people who were despised and rejected in their own society. And we're going to see more of this yet again in our text this morning. And I just invite you to consider a couple things as we dive in. When you consider Jesus, when you consider the person and work of Jesus, what do you see? What do you think about? What, what do you picture? Here's another question I'd invite you to consider as we're walking through this text. Are your thoughts and expectations of Jesus in line with what the Bible actually teaches about Jesus. What we've seen in our walk through Mark is Jesus reveals himself, the real true Jesus, the real true Son of God, but people around Jesus, the crowds that are always following Jesus, the religious leaders of the day, and even Jesus' closest followers, his best friends, are always missing Jesus' true purpose and Jesus' true mission. And so I just ask you to consider that this morning. Who is Jesus? And who is Jesus to me? So let's really like seek this out this morning. Let's seek out the true Jesus in light of the text this morning. Let's pray. And then we're going to jump in. 
Lord Jesus, we need you. Just would invite you here, Lord, that you would invade this space this morning, Lord, that you would show us our need for you, the true Jesus, not the Jesus of our culture, Lord, the Jesus of whatever we've been taught to believe. Lord, I just pray that you would strip away any false narratives or false ideas that we have about you, Lord, that we would just see you high and resurrected, lifted up, Savior, King, Jesus. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, it says this. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. So just a brief recap from the last several weeks. We've seen Jesus heading towards Jerusalem for the time of Passover. Jews from all over the known world are headed to Jerusalem. They're making a pilgrimage towards Jerusalem to make their offerings as was the custom. Passover is a celebration when the nation of Israel would gather to remember the time when they were in slavery to the Egyptians. And after the plagues and Pharaoh still refused to let them go. That's in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. God said, I'm going to send one more plague upon them. He told them he was going to kill all the firstborn in the land. All the firstborn sons in the land. But he told the Israelites, take a lamb, a pure and spotless lamb, and kill it. And put its blood on the doorposts and the lentils of your house. Because the Lord was indeed going to strike the firstborn of the nation of Israel. And when the Spirit of the Lord saw the blood on the doorways, the Spirit of the Lord would then pass over the house, saving those that were inside where the blood was. Jesus, knowing his mission and his purpose, is headed to Jerusalem to make his offering to God. Jesus is going to offer himself. Jesus is going to offer himself, but not for the pardon and forgiveness of his sins, but for the pardon and forgiveness of the sins of the world. Jesus is the Passover lamb. And so Jesus and his disciples, they're about two miles away from Jerusalem. They come to this place, Bethany. If you flip over a couple books in John, the Gospel of John, John chapter 11, Jesus has these friends, Mary and Martha and their, their brother uh, Lazarus. I almost said Nazareth. That's where he's from. Not, yeah, Lazarus. Jesus, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They live in Bethany. And just some things to keep in mind. This is just a little bonus tip for you as, as you're reading the Bible. You should read your Bibles. Um, the Bible is not made up of a bunch of disjointed stories. It all follows a theme. It all has a flow. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And he goes through Bethany and he sees his friends. And his buddy Lazarus has died. And Jesus resurrects him after he's been in the grave for four days. Jesus and his disciples are staying here with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And after Jesus miraculously raises Lazarus back to, to life, or right before, rather, Jesus says this in John eleven twenty five 25, and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. 
Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus is calling his friends and his disciples to faith in him in that moment. This is yet another prediction that Jesus is making of his coming death and resurrection. And I only bring this story up to to point to another instance of Jesus' kindness and of Jesus being merciful. Much like our story last week where Jesus heals blind Bartimaeus, Jesus is on his way to the cross. And Jesus stops. And Jesus helps people in great need, even on the way to death. Last week, he helped a blind man recover his sight. And right before going into Jerusalem, he raises Lazarus from the dead, restoring family together. And yet, one more time, he's revealing himself again to be powerful over affliction. And even, and this is important, even as the story continues to unfold, Jesus is going to show himself powerful over death. So now the time has come for him to enter Jerusalem from his outpost in Bethany. Keep in mind a few things. I've said this the last few weeks. Keep, it, keep this in mind always as we're going to continue walking through Mark. Jerusalem is a hostile environment for Jesus and his followers. The religious leaders are firmly set against Jesus, and Jesus and his disciples know this. So for them to follow Jesus into Jerusalem is super risky. But Jesus is dead set on his mission and his purpose. So with his arrival in Jerusalem, everything is about to change. The Lamb of God is now about to be slain. The atonement, the payment for sin's penalty is about to get paid. And it will be paid in time and space and history for the world to behold. So he sends two of his disciples, two of his followers, two of these unnamed followers into the village. He tells them, hey, there's going to be a colt, a baby donkey, that has never been set upon. And he says, hey, go and untie it, and you may catch a little static from the owners, but just tell them the Lord needs it. Jesus needs it, and when he's done, he'll bring it back. So they go into the village, and it happened just like Jesus said. Verse 4, And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of these standing there said to him, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said, and they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. They do receive some pushback from the owners, like, what is the meaning of this stealing my donkey? And the guys are like, hey, Jesus needs it. Jesus is so popular in this moment. Jesus can have whatever he wants, apparently. Uh, Jesus needs it. Yeah, go, take it. All objections are gone in this moment. They bring this baby donkey to Jesus and they threw their cloaks, they threw their robes on the back of the colt for Jesus to sit on. There's a lot going on here that we need to take note of. This is the only time in Jesus' ministry where he's not going to be walking. Every other time we see Jesus on the move, he's on foot, unless he's like riding in a boat. And here he is, Jesus, the king of the world, riding triumphantly into Jerusalem. But he's not riding on a majestic war horse. He's riding in humility on a baby donkey. Consider a few things with me for a second. Back in the Old Testament, there's a prophetic book named Zechariah. Zechariah 9.9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. 
Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Here's Jesus showing up, making a bold declaration. Jesus is saying, I am he. I am your king. Salvation is here. I am the fulfillment of all that was said about the Messiah. Jesus is the one who was promised from the beginning. The one that was coming to fix the fall of man that took place because of Adam's sin in the garden. And Jesus' humble ride into Jerusalem is a declaration that the kingly rule and reign of Jesus is, is here now. Jesus sits on this colt. The text says this colt had never been ridden on. This day in Jesus' ministry exists just to fulfill prophecy after prophecy. The entire Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. And here in these seemingly unimportant seven verses in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is showing that he is the fulfillment of every Old Testament prophecy. Everything said about him hundreds or even a few thousand years prior to this is finding its fulfillment, it's finding its satisfaction, it's finding its end in Jesus. So here is Jesus riding on the foal of a donkey, as Zechariah says. I don't know if you have any experience with horses or donkeys, but one does not simply get on a donkey or a horse that has never been ridden before. Like, you don't just, like, get on and all of a sudden become John Wayne riding into the sunset. Usually horses and donkeys, animals like this, they have to be broken in. Usually they'll buck and kick and just don't want anything to do with being a beast of burden for us. And yet, here's this donkey, has no need of being broken in. This donkey knows who his master is. It's like, my creator's on my back. And Jesus, in humbleness, announces righteousness and announces salvation. Mark 11.8 says, And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. So they're going along. Many people are taking off their outer robes and laying them on the road. People are cutting palm branches and waving them around and laying them on the road for Jesus and his noble steed to walk upon. This is super symbolic. These branches are a symbol of peace. I mean, think about that for a second. If you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, the nation of Israel, the Jewish nation, the Jewish people have basically been in and out of captivity since their origin, since the beginning. All the way back in Genesis, we see them being exiled to Egypt because of a famine where they would eventually be enslaved by the Egyptians. Then throughout the Old Testament, we see them enslaved to the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. And during the time of Jesus, we see them in captivity to the Romans. So, the Jews, there's this frenzied crowd, and it's super exciting, because this is our time. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming to finally establish the throne that was promised to King David. Our political saviors here. They are getting the Messiah that they finally think they want. The guy they think is here to rescue them politically is here. 
Look at their response. Verse 9. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Picture this parade for a second. Jesus is following a long procession of people, and they're worshiping him. Hosanna, they say. This is a statement. It means save now or save we pray. So they're acknowledging that Jesus is in fact the one who will save. But their praise is completely misguided. Because their motives aren't rooted in faith in Christ. Their motives aren't rooted in faith, in faith in the one who will save them from their ultimate enemy. It's not a pagan government you need to be saved from. They need to be saved from themselves. We need to be saved from our sin. We need to be saved from that which we cannot save ourselves from. Jesus is here for that purpose first. Jesus is indeed coming in the name of the Lord. He is indeed coming from the lineage of David. Thus, yes, filling, fulfilling more prophetic pictures about who this Messiah will be. Jesus is coming to establish his kingdom. But it is first and foremost a spiritual kingdom, a heavenly kingdom. To be the ruler of the world in a geopolitical sense, Jesus must first accomplish spiritual salvation by defeating death by becoming death. And unfortunately, the crowd completely missed it. Man, these people are mostly Jewish pilgrims in Jerusalem coming there to celebrate the Passover. At every Passover celebration, they are celebrating God's deliverance of his people. They're being reminded of a time when they were in slavery. They're being reminded of a time when God delivered them. And they're also being reminded that, yes, God will deliver us again. It is a celebration. But it also carries this somber reminder that we are still in captivity. We are still being oppressed. It carries this weight with it. The celebration of Passover carries this weight with it of how long, O Lord? Redeem us, Lord. Save us, O Lord. And here's Jesus riding on a donkey to do just that. And this group of people, by and large, a group of devout Jews who know the scriptures, they know the promises of God to them, and yet they failed to grasp the nature of this messianic reign of Jesus. They completely miss Jesus in this moment. In Luke's gospel, we see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem as they failed to understand that he was in fact there to save them. And this crowd on this Sunday would in a few short days later go from shouts of praise, from shouts of worship, from shouts of adoration, from shouts of Hosanna to shouts of crucify him. When they failed to see Jesus for who he was first and foremost, a spiritual redeemer and not a political one first? They failed to see that the Prince of Peace is here. They failed to grasp the weight of Isaiah 53 that their Messiah, by means of suffering and death, would make the payment for sin's penalty for his people. 
who by the means of his life was calling the multitudes to himself, who by the means of his mercy was drawing the poor, the needy, the oppressed, the orphan, and the widow into the sphere of his love. He is here yet again, calling sinners to faith and repentance through his death and resurrection. And they completely missed it. It's interesting. It's interesting that we call this Palm Sunday um, when Jesus rode in the week before Easter, when Jesus is mounted on a donkey and he rides into Jerusalem. It's, it's known as Palm Sunday. We also call it the triumphal entry. But there is nothing triumphant about this. It's really quite tragic. These people, the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel, they get the Messiah that they were promised. And they missed it. They got the Messiah they were promised. They got the one they should have been expecting, but they didn't get the Messiah that they wanted. And what about you? You have the Savior you were promised. But do you still run to other things to try to satisfy yourself? Do you run to sex, money, possessions, relationships, or wanting a spouse? Do you make your kids or your career your idol? Man, Jesus shows up and he makes a declaration. Jesus, your Messiah is here. And you don't love him and you don't submit to his lordship. And you turn on him in a moment. And you leave him and you abandon him when you get the Jesus you were promised but not the Jesus you want. When you get the Jesus who identifies with you in your weakness, and yet you are unwilling to persevere with him. You leave him when he doesn't give you everything you want when you want it. But he offers you everything you need. And people do the same thing today. And that is a horrible tragedy. It's also triumphant. Jesus is accomplishing his purpose and his mission. Jesus knows the excitement of the crowd is going to provoke the religious leaders of the day against him. Jesus knows that his days on earth are indeed numbered, and he goes forward anyways. He goes forward knowing he was sent to live in order that he may die. And in doing so, he is making salvation and heaven possible for those whose faith is in him. And look at how this text ends. Verse 11, 11, it says, And he uh, entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus goes from the triumphal entry and a huge crowd around him, and he goes to the temple all alone. The center of culture in Jerusalem is this temple. It contains all this beautiful architecture, and Jesus is just not impressed. He's actually grieved. And we'll see, we'll see that he's grieved next week because he is realizing that this people does indeed honor him with, with their lips. They honor God with their lips only, not their lives. That's what they call in the radio business a teaser. Jesus will be back next week to deal with the hypocrisy of the temple. But one thing to take note of today in this triumphal entry text, Jesus goes all the way to the temple, and he is all alone. The crowd had completely disappeared. Jesus is king for a day in the, in the 
eyes of the crowd. Jesus is at the temple foreshadowing of the coming work of Jesus in the next week. Jesus is here, and he will start his work first at the cleansing of the temple, and then he will continue his cleansing work by making sinners clean through his blood on the cross. The crowd who laid palm branches on the road as a symbol of peace would in the same way lay Jesus on the cross in order that he may make a peace offering by offering himself as the sacrifice for the sins of humanity. And he does so in order to satisfy the wrath of God against sin. Now here we sit, a couple thousand years removed from this event. Historically speaking, we know how this story ends. We know that Jesus, the person, would in fact die on the cross as a condemned man for crimes he did not commit. We know that the Bible tells us he was buried in a tomb and would be raised to life. Jesus, born of a virgin, would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey that had never been written, and he was uh, buried in a tomb that was never used before, having been sentenced to death for no wrongs that he had ever done, and yet... He was pleased to fulfill the will of his Father. He was pleased to submit to the Father's will. His purpose and his mission were redeeming sinners back to himself. The question that we must consider this morning, church, is does this mean anything to you? When I asked you earlier to picture your view of Jesus, where did your mind go? You see, it's real easy for us. We can be like the crowd in our text today. We have pictures of or expectations of Jesus that aren't entirely helpful to us. The crowd wanted this warrior king, but they got a suffering servant. We also get the suffering servant, but we forget that through the means of his resurrection, Jesus, our Messiah, does indeed make war. He fought the war on sin and death, and he will return as a warrior king to restore things to how they were always intended to be. Jesus will rule and reign for all eternity, both in a spiritual sense, but also in a kingly rule. He will overthrow all world governments one day, but until that day, we wait. We await eagerly for his return with the knowledge that we have a hope and a future and an eternity secured because Jesus did come to die. Man, because of the cross, Jesus is worthy of your worship. Because of the cross, Jesus is worthy of your devotion. And Jesus is worthy to be followed and followed all the way. Listen, if you're a believer in here, understand a couple things this morning. Understand this. Jesus is God. Therefore, because he is God, God's attributes are reflected in him. Meaning this, Jesus is all-knowing, Jesus is all-powerful, Jesus is all-good and the only good, and the most good. So, because of all of that, Jesus can be trusted. Because he knows what you need when you need it. And he is pleased to act on your behalf for his glory and for your good. Because he is pleased with you if you are in him. Jesus can be trusted. Christ can be trusted because of this text which shows that Jesus, in spite of the impending unjust punishment he is about to endure, his face is still set towards the cross for your salvation. Does this truth have any impact on you at all? 
You may say you know Jesus is your Lord. You may claim to be a believer in Jesus, but does your life reflect this? Are you in awe of Jesus? Are your desires towards Jesus? Do you desire to spend any time with Jesus? Through reading of your word, through prayer with Jesus, do you seek to make Jesus known in your life by actively praying to seek and to serve others and share the good news with them? Man, are you meaningfully connected to Christ's bride, the church? Are you living on mission for Jesus? Man, again, I'd like to just remind you of our text from a few weeks back. The rich young ruler asked Jesus, What must I do to inherit eternal life? The answer is this. We must admit our neediness and dependency on him. Those who inherit the kingdom of God know their neediness before God as spiritually broken and spiritually bankrupt people in need of a Savior. Man, shout Hosanna in prayer and in praise and in complete dependency on Jesus because of this Jesus who endured your cross on your behalf to save you, to liberate you from your ultimate enemy of sin and death. Man, if you're not a believer in here, man, I just invite you to consider Jesus this morning in light of this text. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem intentionally to be crucified. Jesus is knowingly heading towards the cross to fulfill the promises of God made all the way back in Genesis that through the offspring of Eve, the enemy will be defeated. And as Jesus is drawing near to Jerusalem, he is going there to die. And he is willingly going there to die on our behalf. By entering Jerusalem, Jesus is showing us a picture of his love for us so that we can be forgiven. He stops on his way to the cross. He stops yet again to help people that cannot help themselves. Jesus offers forgiveness through his death. So now, we no longer have to live for ourselves. We no longer have to try to satisfy ourselves with temporal things, with earthly things that leave us feeling empty or discontent. Rather, Because of the sacrifice of Jesus to us, we get to live by faith in Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. Man, all that's required of you is that you confess that you need him. Man, so who is Jesus to you? He is either everything to you or he is nothing. You cannot have it both ways. We either follow him fully or we're not following him at all. He is either your Savior, He's either the Lord of your life, or He's nothing to you. Consider Jesus. This Jesus, who is the resurrection for life, willingly took on your sin, willingly took on your shame, willingly took on your guilt and your punishment on Himself to rescue you and to restore you back to life. And He is calling you to believe in Him this morning. He's calling you out of sin and darkness. He's calling you to him in order to give you what you need most, and that is himself. 
He is calling you out of your complacency. He is calling you out of your spiritual laziness. He is calling you to complete dependency on him because he is better than anything else that this world has to offer. So turn to him in faith this morning, church. Let's pray.